If you have kids and they want to be a part of the kids service, they're welcome to leave during this time and to the back and they'll follow Miss Lauren out. As Adam mentioned earlier, I'm privileged and uh, very honored to bring the word to you this morning. Um, so as you're opening your Bibles to Second Timothy, we're going to be in chapter three today, specifically in verses 14 through 17. And as you're flipping there, Second Timothy three, I'm just going to explain a little bit of context before we start diving in. This letter is one of the pastoral epistles, and it was written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a spiritual child in the faith, Timothy, one who he is personally discipled and, and taken along with his ministry the whole time. But at this point, this happens after, sometimes after the book of Acts records where Paul is in Rome. He's, he's been put in under house arrest. But in that context, it seems that he had some freedom to walk about and, and travel in some ways and have people visit him and preach the word. But here in 2 Timothy, which some commentators say is maybe just a short time after that, a couple of years, he seems to be in prison, and he knows that this is the time right before his earthly ministry and his life will be over. So this, in some ways, is Paul's last will and testament to Timothy. And at this point in this part of Paul's life, he, he mentions in this book that at his trial, no one stood beside him. All the people that he in, invested in, even the believers there, besides Anasphorus and Luke, everybody else deserted him. So there at his trial... The only person that stood by him, he said, is, is Jesus himself. So he's at this, at this low point of his life, but he's encouraged because the time of his departure has come. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. And so he's, he's writing this letter to Timothy almost like, I'm about to depart. I'm about to die for what I've believed and for what I've taught you. And so these are the things that I want to pour out and teach you as I'm almost on my way out of here. So that's kind of the context, but to set it even better than words that I can say, we're going to read chapter 3. So just follow along with me as I read chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people's, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Timothy. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women and burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jan Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. You, however, he's talking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14 is our text. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In just a few verses into chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You can almost hear in this text, this is Paul's heart. He's crying out already in the book. He said things like, the things you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men. Verse 8 of chapter 2, remember Jesus Christ. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God. 22, flee youthful passions. Avoid such people. Continue in what you've learned. Preach the word. Always be sober-minded. You can tell that this is Paul. I'm, 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 I'm out of my way. I'm on my way out of this world. These are the things that I want to pass on to you, Timothy. And this is, this is more of a heartfelt father to a child to, to remain, to continue in the things that you've learned. So that's where we're, that's where we're at. Is we wanted to look into this, this whole section of Scripture here, the, the, fir, the verses 14 through 17. I, I examined that whole thing, in it, and I really think that the whole context here is that they, Timothy would continue in the Scriptures. He would continue in the truth. So there in your notes at the very top, it says, In contrast to the world around us, Christians must anchor down into the truth of the Bible. We must anchor down into God's Word. But why is it, if we're supposed to anchor down into truth, in contrast to those around us who are wandering off and going elsewhere, why is it the Bible? Why do we have to anchor down into that? Why can't we just anchor down into truth? Well, it's interesting what Jesus says about that in John 17. He says in his own prayer before his own death, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, he's praying to the Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we can see if we're supposed to be sanctified in the truth and we're supposed to continue in the truth in contrast to those around us, we have got to continue in the word. Because Jesus says, Father, your word is truth. So then it's like an examination of what is God's word. And I think that that's why in verse 16, Paul starts unpacking what God's word is and how it's useful for everything in life. But that's kind of the overarching thing that we want to examine is that in order for us to continue, we've got to anchor down into the truth of the Bible. But in order to anchor down into the truth of the Bible, there's about six things that I found that we could do in this text. Um, so let's look at number one in your in your notes. In order for us to continue in the truth, we must hold fast to the teachings of the scriptures. This verse 14 again. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed this. But as for you, this is a direct contrast to those that we just talked about in chapter three, the ones that were slanderous and without self-control and brutal and not loving good. You, however, but as for you. You continue in the things that you've learned. So this word continue, I'm just curious. As you hear it, what do you think that it means? Does anybody take a stab at it? Continue. Anybody else? Okay. When I first read it, I'm with Dan. Continue. Keep going. Um, Keep progressing forward. 
Um, but I think Chris said what it actually is is, is, is not that. It, the English word almost kind of misrepresents the idea here, but it, it does. It does say it. So you can definitely use the word continue. But the Greek here, it means to remain, to endure, to abide, to stay. And this is in direct reference to those that was just mentioned in verse 13. Check this out. It says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. And then down in chapter 4, if you look at verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off. So those who proceed on from bad to worse and those who wander off. But as for you, you stay. You stay. You endure. You remain. In other places, this word is used It's in reference to a place or a time or a state of condition. So in place, in Luke 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples that are going out, and he says, stay, Luke 10, 7, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So that's in reference to a place. In time, in John 6, he also says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures. That Greek word again, remains into eternal life. So you can see, don't work for the things that perish. Work for the things that continue, that stay until eternal life. And then state of condition, John fifteen four, Abide, that same Greek word, meno. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So you see this, this aspect of you stay, Timothy. As far as all the other people around you, you stay. So this is what Paul is saying. Don't leave Timothy. Instead, remain, abide, endure. Don't be like those who go on or wander off. You stay and continue. But, it's, but continue in, in what? What are we supposed to be continuing in? What is Timothy supposed to be continuing in? Well, it says, continue in the things that you have learned and have firmly believed. The things that Paul is referencing back to is teachings that Timothy has been taught in the past. And we know that because the word learned... Continue in the things that you've learned is a Greek word that means to hear or be informed or educated to increase in knowledge. So you continue in the things that you've been educated in, Timothy. But the really awesome thing that I did not see until I started studying this is that this Greek word is a different form of the same word for that one right there. Make disciples. Matthew 28. Make disciples. Same word. So. A different form. I don't know how to explain that, but it's the same. So in essence, this is what he's saying. Timothy, hold fast and stay. Abide, endure in the things that you've been discipled in. In the things that you've been discipled in. You've been instructed in the truth. Don't be like those who learn, but never arrive at knowledge of the truth. Instead, continue. You see that in in chapter 3. It says, these people are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. You continue. You stay fast in the things that you've been discipled in, the things that you know are true. But then that next part, he says, continue the things that you've learned and have firmly believed. This Greek word also means to make faithful, to be firmly persuaded, to be assured of. This is like the only time that firmly believed in this like is in this way is used in the New Testament. So it's kind of hard to judge it with other passages to see how the word is used. But in this one. It is used in a such a way to say, this is what you've been fully assured of. But the root word of it comes from different places. And this is like in Acts fourteen nineteen. And listen to this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So that won over, 
It's that same same root word. In Second Timothy one five, in the other in the beginning of this book, I'm reminded of your sincere faith and a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. It's not. I'm pretty sure it dwells in you too. No, it's the same. It's I've been won over in that sense. I am firmly convinced that this has happened in you, Timothy. And then a few verses from that in Second Timothy one, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So these things today, like these firm beliefs, these hold these hold fast, um, unwavering things, we would call convictions in some ways. I mean, it's not the best correlation, but we would call them convictions. And one commentator specifically said that convictions are non-negotiable truths, not subject to compromise. So these are things that Timothy has been discipled in. You continue in the things that you've learned, things that you've been discipled in, but in the things that have fully convinced you, the things that you have been fully assured of. So I've, I've seen a couple observations from this before we move on. Instruction in truth leads to strong convictions which then lead to action for good use. And this is how I kind of see that. You, you instruct somebody in the truth. If they believe it's truth and they strongly believe it, they do something with that. They don't just sit back and don't do anything with the things that you teach them. Obviously, that's the goal of teaching or discipling or educating anybody is that you use the knowledge for something, right? Okay, so Philippians 4.9 in the Philippians church, he says, What you have learned, been discipled in, and received in me, received is that you didn't reject it so you obviously believed it practice these things and the god of peace will be with you so what you've heard and learned and you received you believed it go and practice them go do something with the things that you've learned in second timothy 3 he also we already mentioned you however have followed my teaching my conduct my aim in life so there's that following i taught you something but you did something with it so that observation one is that Instruction to truth leads to strong convictions, but that in itself leads to action. But it's, it's funny because the initial action that I'm seeing here to be taken from being instructed in the truth is the call to stay in the truth. So let me explain that. I'm instructing you in truth. You believe it. Now do something with it. But the very first thing that you do with it is to stay in the truth. Isn't that kind of circular in some ways? It's really neat, though. Observation two. The ungodly can learn, but they don't ever really know the truth. So these are things that are just in my notes, but they're not in yours. Observation one, this leads to this. Observation two, though, ungodly people can learn, sure, but they don't do anything with it. Second Timothy 3, 7, we already read, always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. And there's this really neat example that I found in Matthew. In Matthew nine thirteen, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, go and learn same thing. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, if you're just reading a chapter a day or something, you might notice that um, and, and, and miss the fact that if you read large sections of Scripture, at, late, at least in one time, like I was doing at this point, I got to chapter 12 of Matthew and noticed that he said something too. If you've known what this meant, if you had known what this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. So chapter 9, Jesus says, go learn what this means. Do something with the knowledge. Chapter 12, they didn't. If you would have learned this, you wouldn't have done this. So go and learn. But there's obviously, we learn to do. We learn to take forward. 
in that regard. But at the same time, we stay in another regard on the things that we've learned. So only learning that leads to action is true learning. What good is it to be taught something and not use that information for some good purpose? Think about this. We do this every day. If you go to the doctor, doc, I'm sick, right? What do I need to do? He says, okay, well, you have this. I'm teaching you. I'm educating you on what you've got. You may even be firmly believe, believe these things now because I've shown you an x-ray. Take this medicine. You'll be fine. And it's like we say, okay, thank you for educating me. Thank you for fully convincing me. Thank you for handing me the pill. No, thanks. Like, nobody does that. We take that situation, that example, as just a practical, we are educated, we're fully convinced, we do. Okay, the ungodly are kind of like that crazy guy. They're, hey, we'll hear this. We may or may not be fully convinced, because if they were, they'd do something. So they're not convinced, and we're not going to do anything with it. So that's kind of like the, just some observations that I made that when he was saying, but as for you, you continue in these things that you've learned and firmly believed. It was definitely a call to things that he's taught him in the past, but it was a call to do something with what you've learned. And we'll examine in some ways what that actually works itself out later in chapter four. But for the rest of our passage that we're examining today, it's more of a I'm just instructing you about what is going on in the word and in your life so that you will be motivated to do something about it. So Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm calling you to stay Continue in the things that you've learned, things that you've been discipled in, truth that you yourself have been fully convinced of, truth that has convinced and won you over. Don't be like those who learn, but never come to know the truth. Okay, so that first point there, um, I forgot what it was, but it's hold fast to the instruction or to the teaching that we've been taught from the scriptures. Point two, we want to look at. It is to remember the godly people who taught us the scriptures to remember the godly people who taught us the scriptures, the quality of our teachers that or the quality of the teachers, Timothy, that taught you the truth gives validity to the truth. And let's use that same example of the doctor. You have some guy off the, in the parking lot of Walmart walk up and say, hey, you're sick. You need to do this. I'm less inclined to to do that than if I was in a doctor's office with a guy with a white jacket on so in some ways like that's about office it doesn't really flow into my thought process here but the type of person that is telling you the truth whether it's still true or not the guy in walmart parking lot still may be sick and still may be true like it gives validity to the message and that's what he's that's what he's harping on here he says let's move on but as for you continuing what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it so he's, he's going straight there you know who taught you these things when i first read this again He's saying, hey, know from whom you've learned it. I did all of this for you. But again, surprise, Greek for whom is plural. So he's obviously talking about more than one person here. So it's a reference to Paul's teaching and example for sure. Because in chapter 1, verse 13 of the same book, he says, you lay hold of closely joined to my sound words. Follow the example of my sound words. In 2, 2, he says, hey, the things that you've heard from me and trust to faithful men. 310, you followed my teaching, my example. So, yes, there is definitely a high impact that Paul had on the life of Timothy that he's calling him to continue in, knowing from whom you learned it. You learned it from an apostle. You learned it from me. However, it's also a reference to his grandmother and his mother. And this is found in chapter 1, verse 5. We've already read it. It says, 
I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So how do I know that it includes them? Well, it's that next word. It says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted. So and how from childhood. So I'm thinking when I read this verse again, childhood. Okay, when Timothy was a little lad, he was taught the things of Scripture, right? Little little tyke. But uh, that's not it. Again, the Greek for this childhood, in some cases when it's used, is used for an embryo, for a newborn infant, a, a, a babe. So in some ways, he's saying, and how from brephos, this, this childhood, from infancy, you've been acquainted. So we know that that has to include his grandmother and mother because Paul wasn't around during that time. Acts 16 tells us that his, his father was a Gentile and was not a believer, at least at this point. I hope that he came around to the truth if he was still alive. We're not really told a lot about his dad. But his mother and his grandmother were Jews that took it very seriously to instruct Timothy in God's way. And they probably took texts like Deuteronomy 4, 9 and Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 that talk about, hey, all these things that I'm commanding you today, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk about them when you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you're cooking, when you're doing the dishes. You teach God's law. You teach God's commandments. So obviously these ladies took that seriously. And then Proverbs 22, they were probably very familiar with. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. So his mother and grandmother, this should be an encouragement to, to, to people who don't have, you know, dads in their life that had moms that were primarily the spiritual foundation here. God uses you guys and God uses anybody to lay the foundation for, for what children need through the Bible, through the scriptures. And we're going to show how that's, how that's useful right here. Commentators, though, note that Timothy seems to have had such a strong foundation laid by his grandmother and mother, that had Paul brought a false message to Timothy when he came around, Timothy would have rejected it. So in some ways, Timothy was, I was trying to think of the best way to think about this, because he hadn't heard about Christ, so he wasn't a Christian in the sense. But there were Old Testament saints that were following in the faith, hoping in the new coming Messiah. So it's still by faith that they're saved in Christ. But he was a truth truster. This is something that Adams talked to us about. Like, you bring more truth to trust in. Like, I can call Timothy a truth truster. His parents, or his grandmother and his mother was that as well. And so it seems that the truth that he had was sufficient that if Paul had brought a false message, Timothy would have rejected it. But why? Why? What was the foundation for Timothy's grounding? Well, it, it says in the very next part, so that we'll move on. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have fully believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, from infancy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So the sacred writings, again, two words that when you use them separately are all over the place. Sacred, talking about the temple, all these other times, writings, talking about anything that's written. But when you put them together, the, the two words here for Greek-speaking Jews of that time Use them to refer to the Old Testament. So we would say the word holy can be used somewhere. We would say the word writings could be used somewhere. But when we put them together, the holy writings, the people of that day knew exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the Old Testament. You're talking about God's law. So 
there is a clear mark of divine holiness here. Because these are sacred writings. They're not just writings. You've been acquainted through their example, through their foundation, to these sacred writings. There's a clear mark of divine holiness. Reminding him that the Old Testament is God's sacred word. Jews knew it then, and even we know this now. It is holy, it's revered, and sacred. This book that we have is holy, it's revered, it's sacred. There's a reason our Bible on the back of it says Holy Bible, and it comes from this verse. Sacred writings, sacred writings. I guess it wouldn't fit, so they put Holy Bible. It comes from this verse. This book we hold is unlike any other book. This book we hold is divine. It is holy, completely set apart from every other writing. But as we'll see later... This holy book isn't sacred because the pages of themselves are sacred, but because what the pages contain are the very words of God. God's word is holy and sacred. God's word, which we now have in a collection, is the same. But destroy this, you don't destroy God's word. In fact, one commentator I remember, he was talking about Jeremiah and his ministry. God dictated the word to him, he, he sent it, or he told some other guy to write it down. He wrote it down. Some other guy came in here and burned it, and God gave it to him again. So you destroy this, you don't destroy God's word. So it's the pages themselves aren't sacred, the pen strokes themselves, but God's word is, which is contained in here. So Paul is saying, trust in what you've been discipled in and have been fully assured of, Timothy. Remember the character and the example of those who taught you. We are trustworthy examples of faithful living. Don't disregard our faithfulness to the truth and leave the foundation laid for you. As young as you can remember, you have been probably before he could remember. You've been taught truth from the sacred writings. You know it. So stay in it. Stay there. This is something that convicted me like crazy when I read it, because I've had this idea with Macy, who's a year and a couple months old, like, Well, we'll start Bible study time whenever she can communicate to us, when I know she can understand. No, we've got to back up, start over, even from birth, maybe embryo. We've got to start teaching the Bible, start laying that foundation. And of course, I mean, we changed our pattern. We changed our bedtime routine. We read her the uh, stories from the Jesus Storybook Bible and we pray with her. Sure, for the first three seconds, man, she is interested. And then after that, she is not But that's okay, because one day maybe it'll start to click. But our foundation will have been, our thing that we've been used to will have started way before. And so the next baby, you better believe we're going to start doing it way earlier than a year and a month. Because the example here, I mean, I didn't have to have Adam or anybody else tell me, hey, you should do this, even though he was. This passage says, this is where, this is what your grandmother and mother did. And I'm, 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 I'm calling on this to be one of the reasons that you stay Because you've been acquainted with these things since you were an infant. So that's what he's saying. But he also says, number three, recall the power of the scriptures. Verse 15, second half. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, comma, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So recall the power of the scriptures, Timothy which are able to make you wise for salvation. I like the way that the NASB translation says it, because it says, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So this, again, sacred writings, Old Testament, he's saying, has the ability and the power to provide you the wisdom that leads to salvation. How, how in the world can the Old Testament do that? Well, for one, it is a clear picture as a whole of God's relationship with his creation, with man's broken relationship with God and his need for that to be restored, man's inability to fulfill God's demands and his law, the need for sin to be punished because God's a good judge, the inability of the blood of animals to fully pay for man's sin. Sacrifices can't work forever or fully, I should say. And God's promise of a coming Messiah to save his people is revealed there too. So Old Testament saints, they're revealed truth. They trust in it. They're counted righteous. Abraham had a certain amount. Noah had a certain amount. But as the truth was brought, faith is still the the basis of this. And it's purchased by Christ still on credit in the future, in the coming of the future Messiah. Now, though, with Christ already come, it is is what, through what Christ has done. And now there's no other name under heaven which man can be saved through Jesus Christ. There never was before, but it was a little, it was a little different in that transition time. And if you want to help me understand that better, please come help me. Um, and so that's what it says. But he goes on to say, through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the whole Old Testament as a whole, I'll just note this, points to Jesus. So even if they didn't know Jesus, they knew. Like there were people that trusted in the coming Messiah. Obviously when Jesus was an infant, there was the, the lady, I don't remember her name, and the guy, I don't remember his name either, that were there at the temple that were here to say, hey man, Jesus is here, I can die, I can go to be with the Lord because salvation of Israel is here. They were trusting, they were looking forward to that Messiah. And Jesus, in the face of the Pharisees, says, look guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So you're searching the sacred writings because you think that you'll have eternal life in them. Okay? And it is they that bear witness about me. Can you imagine how bold that would have been? These are the sacred writings that everybody reveres, that, that people come to very carefully. If you really would have went to them the way that you were supposed to, you would have seen that they were talking about me. Like, no wonder they... Tried to kill that guy. Well, they did. So that's that's the kind of things that he was saying is I'm I'm the God of Scripture. I'm the, the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in control here. This is what it talks about in verse 46 of John 5. There is one who accuses you and it's Moses on whom you set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the Old Testament points to Christ. But it's 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 important to note that in this passage, the scriptures, again, themselves do not save. Reading the Old Testament, picking it up and, you know, sniffing it and rubbing it, it's not going to save you. But what's really neat is it has the power to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So in the Old Testament, you're reading it, you're seeing these things, God's making you wise. And that wisdom, again, like we turned about, to do something with it, will post Jesus now. It leads us and points us to Christ, which is revealed further in the New Testament. We have the revelation that we need. We're wise unto salvation. We follow Christ. So the scriptures don't do it, but they give the wisdom that leads to faith in Christ. And this is really cool because John writes almost the exact thing I said in John 20. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So... These are written so that you may believe 
and that by believing you may have life. So it's still by faith here. Galatians 3.24 was also one. The law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It's the same thing. So it's through faith in Christ. Paul is saying, Timothy, not only did the character of your mentors give you validity to our teaching, but recall that it was the sacred writings themselves that gave you the wisdom that led you to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The sacred writings are powerful, Timothy. God's word opened your eyes to see the truth. Continue in it. Stay. Don't leave these teachings. Don't do it. Okay, so then we come to verse 16. Most pastors that I was looking at, they teach their whole sermon on this text. And I was like, oh boy. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hit it as deeply as it needs to be hit. So please go back and study this. But I tried to leave a little bit extra space in this one because you'll need it. So as we go through this, just write down things that, and come to me. I've got seven pages of notes that will help you um, to understand these things. But this is what he's saying. These sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So number four, in order to continue in the faith, continue in the truth, we need to understand the authority and the origin of the scriptures. So you see so far, there hasn't been anything I've mentioned that's, hey, you need to go do this. Put your hands on it and do it. It's hold fast in your soul. Know, remember, recall, understand. These are things, Timothy, that, you, that need to happen here first before they can happen here. Okay, so understand the authority and the origin of the scriptures. So all scripture is breathed out by God. There are two ways not to read this verse. Okay. The first one is a mistranslation found in translation. I think it's the ASV. I may be mistaken. But other people translate it this way, too. I'd be interested to see how the Jehovah's Witnesses translate it. But it says, more literally, every scripture is breathed out by God. So that's the correct one. The mistranslation will say, every scripture breathed out by God is profitable. By changing that is, it opens the possibility that there are some scriptures that aren't breathed out by God. Do you see that? And saying all scripture is breathed out by God. Every scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. Or every scripture breathed out by God is profitable. That is has to be back here. And that's why our the main translations of what we follow here, all the solid ones, put it right where it needs to be. I think the ASV was the only one that I could find. But it's important not to misunderstand that. The second one, and this is a duh for us, all scripture is does not refer to just any writings called Scripture. Because that's the the meaning of the word. It's just writings, right? It doesn't refer to what anybody calls Scripture. So the Book of Mormon, what Jehovah's Witnesses have, extra biblical thing, even their New World Translation, which is not uh, a proper translation, the Quran, these writings that they call sacred texts, that's not what this is talking about here, okay? This is directly referring back to the verse... That he already mentioned, you, the sacred writing. So we're talking about the Old Testament here. Okay, we're talking about the Old Testament, Timothy. However, the word for Scripture here is a word used purposefully, I think, by Paul to communicate that the New Testament writings 
are included. Now, obviously, the New Testament isn't completed when Paul's writing this, but some were being written. And we can see that Scripture here, the word graphe, refers to a certain written thing. However, he used it because the early church was using this word to not only refer to the Old Testament sacred writings, but the ongoing writings of the apostles of the New Testament. How do we know this, right? That's a bold statement. How do we know? I wasn't there. Well, Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 5, 18. And he says, for the scriptures say, and then he quotes something. That one was from Deuteronomy 25. Adam's taught us this in the inspiration of scripture. Second quote, this is from Luke. So obviously there was a time where Paul's writing. He says, hey, the scriptures say this. First one, Deuteronomy. Second one, the book of Luke. Okay, so the New Testament writing, I'm equating with Scripture here, Paul says. Peter, he also did it. Second Peter 3.16, he talks about how people are twisting the letters of Paul. And he says, the letters of Paul are being twisted, and they do this as they do the other Scriptures. So even Peter was looking at Paul's writing and saying, hey, people twist them like they do other Scriptures. So the Scripture, Grapha here, is used for that to express that these people believe that the ongoing Instruction of the word was being uh, was being scripture as they were writing it, but it shouldn't surprise us, right? And this is what was so neat. I've never seen this either. Jesus foretold of the writings of the New Testament in some ways in John fourteen twenty six and in sixteen twelve through fourteen. Things already said, and thing new things not said yet. Listen to this. This is crazy. Fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. So there you go. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Everything that he has said right there, he brought to remembrance. They wrote it down. Later on in chapter sixteen twelve, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he'll bring to remembrance things that I've said. But I've also got some stuff that you guys can't handle yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll teach you. He'll teach you. And he does. He does faithfully through the apostles, through the writings, through the through the prophecies, through revelation, through all of it, through the pastoral epistles. He does it. So that's all scripture. OK, we're going to make some headway here. Breathed out by God is the next section in that verse. This Greek word is the only place it's used is right here. And it's kind of like it means inspired of God or God breathed. It's only used once and it's right here. And commentators even suggest that Paul may have even made it up, kind of coined the term. He used familiar words, but God breathed. This is inspired. This, this word is this. And he, I think he's doing it because he's showing that there is a, the origin of Scripture gives authority to the Scriptures. So the doctrine of the authority of God's word and the inspiration of God's word comes from this verse. We're not going to have time to get into all that. There are so many chapters in systematic theology books about the authority of God's word, the inerrancy of God's word, the inspiration, how that all happened. We're looking at the larger context here. So we're going to have to pass through that, but, you know, hopefully make that a matter of study. You know, as we're putting feet to what Adam's taught us in the past, 
Start getting serious about studying the things of Scripture. Start studying that. That'll help you read the Bible more when you know how authoritative it is. But one thing I will note about inspiration, it doesn't focus on the method of how God communicated his word to human authors, but on the content itself. Okay, so it doesn't focus so much on how God did it, but it focused on the content. So God's word is inspired, not the human author. So he didn't breathe. God breathed on these guys that were sitting there waiting for a pen. And they're like, oh, I feel inspired to write something. And it became scripture. No, God breathed out his word and human authors wrote it down under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's still this weird thing that I don't know how that happens, but I know that it's not that men were inspired and they wrote stuff. Like God's word is God breathed. He, um, it's authoritative because it comes from him. And that's something that we see in Second Peter. It says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God works, goes out. It's breathed. What happened? We've heard this before. God speaks. What happens? The universe is created. God speaks and the dead are raised. He speaks and even the wind and sea obey him, right? He speaks. His, his word is authoritative. It comes out. And now... His word is authoritative and will accomplish what it set out to do in his word. Listen to this part from Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word, when it comes out. Rain doesn't come down here in water and then go back up. It comes down and it does what it's supposed to do. God's word will proceed from his mouth and will accomplish. It will not return to him empty. So since these writings are God's word, again, I've already mentioned this. It doesn't matter if our Bibles were destroyed and all we had were iPad ESV apps in some senses. Because God's word is powerful. It doesn't matter how it's done. Now, this is very precious to me because it follows in the footsteps of so many people who spent their lives translating it in a written book that people could have. But should somebody come and, and tear it all apart and ruin it? And I found some guy that had memorized the book of first Timothy. You tell me what it said. I'll write it down. God's words right there. Not because of me, not because the guy had it there, but on that paper, but because it was God's word revealed here. It's perfect. It's inerrant in its original writings. God's word still speaks. It doesn't matter if someone's blind or illiterate and can't read the pages. You can read it to somebody. God's word still speaks. That's why I think it's important, you know, as we go and read scripture. A person may not be able to read it themselves, but we can still allow God to speak through us by reading scripture to people. The holy book is sacred and we should view it and read it with a renewed reverence. However, it should be revered because the scriptures themselves come from God Almighty. That's why, that's why we should approach the book differently than other books. It's authoritative. It's not the simple pen strokes themselves. Because people can make an idol of the book and worship the book. But because the God behind the pen strokes is still speaking to us today. So when Adam 
And others say, hey, get serious about getting in the Bible. Get serious about hearing from God. Don't, in some ways, go the opposite on one extreme and say, God doesn't continue to speak. He wrote it over here, so there you go. And don't go on the other side that's like, I'm, I'm searching for God to tell me something. Like, no, he's, he's spoken true, and he's still speaking true, but it's right here in the Bible. So you stay in the Scripture. You stay. You hold fast to this. So let's get back to the text. Paul is saying, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and become fully convinced of. Remember your mentors who raised you and on the holy writings. Remember the sacred writings. It is powerful. It gives wisdom to lead people to salvation. Trust in the scriptures. Every scripture is God's word. It comes from him. It is authoritative. Continue in it. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about where it comes from. So number five. In order to continue in the truth, we must believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures. And this is where it gets real practical for us. Believe in the sufficiency of scriptures. Again, another thing that's going on in my own soul before I do anything with it. You believe it. It's profitable. The Greek word here for profitable, because he says, again, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. It means useful, valuable, helpful. It's seen in another passage, and that's in 1 Timothy in the first letter that he wrote. And he's talking about bodily training. He says, hey, bodily training is profitable. It's of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. So, yes, bodily training is profitable and useful. But godliness is so much more. Okay? And we're going to see uh, something really cool here in a second. But this usefulness is in contrast to the worldly empty words that are useless. And we saw that in chapter 2, 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does not do any good but only ruins the hearers. In another place, it leads to further ungodliness. Two verses later, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This babble, these human words that people arguing about, they're not useful. However, words that are God's, that come from him, they're profitable, Timothy. They're useful. Let them have their full effect on you. And I'm about to tell you what this full effect is. Profitable as teaching, this first thing. This Greek word means instruction, doctrine, precepts. This is a noun, and it's from a verb, which means to teach, instill doctrine. So when I first came to this, I noticed, okay, why are these things nouns? When I read it, it says all Scripture is useful for teaching. That's a verb, right? Yes, it is useful for that, but that's not what he's saying here. It's a noun. I think it's, it's true. Yes, absolutely true. And that's what he says in chapter 4. Go teach the word. Go verb. Do it. But it's, it's profitable and useful as doctrine. So scripture on its own, God's word on its own, before there's ever any verb connected to it, it's a noun. It is profitable to teach and instill doctrine to you, Timothy. Romans 15:4 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Same thing. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So doctrine is a divine teaching. That's what we mean by doctrine. It's a divine teaching or instruction, teachings with the divine authority and power. So that's what it's used here. We now use the word sort of similarly whenever we say whatever the whole of Bible, no. I'm not sure. But we use the word doctrine to talk about 
hey, the doctrine of inerrancy or the doctrine of this. That is true. Like it's the sum of all these things together in one nice package about inerrancy. You know, it's the doctrine of this. But here it's it's teaching that's understood as divine. It's authoritative. So it's profitable as divine teaching. And this divine teaching will naturally lead, lead us to live out what we firmly believe. So sound doctrine, knowing sound doctrine, being in Scripture, allowing it to be sound doctrine for us leads to personal godliness. First Timothy 6, 3 says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So this teaching accords with what? Godliness. So this teaching leads to godliness. I think that's so cool. I don't know if I put this later. I'll go ahead and mention it now. Working out, training your body is of profit, Timothy, so do it. However, godliness is much more valuable. Give so much more time to godliness. Here, teaching accords with godliness. Scripture is profitable for doctrine, which leads to godliness. How much more time should you be given to godliness than working out? So much more. How much time, therefore, in implication, should you be in Scripture since it leads you to godliness? So much more, right? So if godliness comes from Scripture, we've got to be in Scripture. If it's more profitable than working out, we've got to be in Scripture in order to get it. Does that make sense? Awesome. I love that. Anyways, sound doctrine is also necessary in order to guard the truth. And we're moving through this. I promise we'll be done here soon. Well, maybe. Sound doctrine is necessary in order to guard the truth. So scripture is profitable, useful as sound teaching so that we can be godly, so that we can guard the truth. Second Timothy 1, 13 through 14 says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Titus 1, 9, a page later says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it's necessary in order to guard the truth. This is really neat because Ephesians six seventeen it says Paul's talking to the church in Ephesians. Take up the helmet of salvation. This is the armor of God. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. OK, so we take up our weapon word of God. The word, or this, this word for sword here, again, as a kid, you're always thinking, big sword, coming in like Aragorn, slashing people with the word. That's not it. Again, I'm, like, I'm always corrected by my misconceptions. It's Greek word used, it's like a large knife. Romans used it. The only way that you're going to be useful with it in battle is if you're very skilled with using it. Because when people do come in with the giant swords, you and your large knife have to know exactly what to do with it. Does it make sense? Right? So this is a large knife. You take up the sword, the large knife of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the word of God, so neat. Other places, the word logos, and it's used truth in general. You know, in general, Jesus was the is the word of God, logos. But this one, Paul uses rhema, which is specific sayings, specific statements, very specific fighting. So you take up that large knife of the word and you be skillful at it. You use it skillfully, specific sayings. And this is seen in what? Jesus, right? Jesus could have said anything when he was being tempted by Satan, right? Satan says this. Jesus could have said whatever he wanted to, 
it would have later been recorded in Scripture and become what? Scripture. So Jesus could have said, no, thanks, man. This is not what I do. You know, whatever. The man that does this should do this. And we would read that and be like, man, Jesus said this. this." But that's not what Jesus does. He gives us an example instead, and he quotes the Old Testament. He could have said anything, anything, but he didn't. He chose three texts from Deuteronomy, which I can't tell you when the last time I've read Deuteronomy. But it's encouraged me to get in it because Jesus obviously knew it and loved it enough to where when he's tempted by the enemy, he uses it. It's so crazy. He could have said anything. But he accurately used the truth to combat those specific lies. He didn't come in and say, yeah, well, God's word says it somewhere. I think, maybe. He says, no, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Next. Come on. That's, you see, he's very specific with it. He knew it. Approved workers of God use Scripture skillfully. Second Timothy, same book, 2.15. He mentioned it, but avoid these people. No need to be ashamed. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Another version says rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's the word in general, the logos here. Divide it. Use it skillfully. Scripture is profitable for doctrine to combat false teaching. We have to be in Scripture to know what doctrine is, but we need to be in it very intentionally and skillfully. Paul is saying, Scripture serves as doctrine for you, Timothy. It is useful and valuable to instruct you in what you are to believe and how you are to live. It is valuable to give you more truth to trust in so you can guard the good deposit entrusted in you. So abide in it. Let's move on. Profitable is reproof. This word is only used once. So again, it makes it hard, but it comes from a root word, which is mean in other places, which is to convict or refute with the suggestion to shame, to bring to light, to expose, to admonish, to call to account, to show one his fault. There's all these attempts to try to say what this word kind of means. The content of Scripture, again, yes, it's useful to reprove. He says that in four, go reprove and rebuke, but that's not what he's saying here. It's a noun. Scripture is profitable and useful as reproof. Content of Scripture is useful to expose falsehood and to convict. John 3.20, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest, or for fear that, his works should be exposed. So Scripture, when we come to it, Timothy, and those after him, there's a negative aspect of what, there's a negative work, I should say, in what the Scripture does. And please understand what I mean by negative. It's a, Scripture tears down. It it cuts up, but it tears down all that is false and fake and harmful and sinful and impure in our thoughts or our misconduct. When we come to Scripture, it gives us what we need to know to believe and live. But when we're not, it'll cut us up. It'll cut us up and show us. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is a living and active is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but are all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. That same sword of the Spirit, same word as in Ephesians. That skillfully used to cut us up, that large knife. Um, I'm not going to mention that. I'll tell you later. It's really cool. As an example, Hebrews 12, though, says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So Paul is saying, Scripture serves as reproof for you, Timothy. It is useful and valuable to expose false belief and ungodly conduct, un- ungodly conduct. So abide in it. Continue in it. Don't leave it. If you do, how are you supposed to know? It serves. It's powerful to cut you up. To tear things down. But that's so cool because it's followed by correction. Correction, this Greek word again, used only once. It's like Paul is just going, going to town here with these used only once words. It means to restoration to an upright position. The root word in other places is seen in only a couple of places. And there's one in Luke. It says he laid his hands on this woman and she was healed and she was made erect again. She was bent over. She was straight up. So there's a positive work that Scripture then does. It builds up and restores that which has fallen to all that is true, good, safe, and pure. After we fall, Scripture is profitable as correction to restore us back to where we once stood. So yes, you're in Scripture. It gives you what you're supposed to do and live and believe. And then you, you don't, so it cuts you up. It cuts you down. But if you stay there, it will build you up. It'll, it'll pick you back up on your feet where you're supposed to be. And that's so neat because after that Hebrews passage about discipline in 11 and 12, 12, he says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make strict paths for your feet so that the limb that is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That word strengthen, same correction, same thing. Be strengthened. Let the word move you from being cut up into pieces into standing strong where you once were. Scripture heals after it cuts. Paul is saying, Scripture serves as correction for you, Timothy. It is useful and valuable to build you up and set you back on your feet after you've been cut down by its truth. So abide in it. And lastly, it's profitable as training in righteousness. This Greek word means specifically the training and education of children and definitely includes discipline. So it's not that much different, but it's a positive discipline. It involves chastening and discipline, but it's the positive. Righteousness here refers to integrity to right living, to virtue, to the purity of life, to the correctness of thinking and acting. So scripture, it trains you in righteousness. So it's cool. Reproof, correction, I'm sorry, doctrine, reproof, correction, training. Reproof and correction work together. Doctrine and training work together. Okay? So as I move forward, keep that in mind. First Timothy 4.6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 4 7, we talked about this earlier. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So if you're supposed to train yourself in godliness, be in the scriptures because it trains you in righteousness. It disciplines you to be righteous. The goal of discipline, though, is godly and righteous living. It trains, we're being trained to bear more fruit and not continue in sin. And this is seen in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? And I've asked that before. How in the world can I keep my way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I'm in scripture so that I might not sin against you. It's training me to not make the same mistakes. John 15, 1 through 2, I'm the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So there's training discipline is so that we produce more fruit. We don't sin much anymore in the same way. And then Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline 
seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the word is sufficient. Paul is saying, Timothy, the word of God is sufficient for all matters of life. It gives you everything you need. Scripture is doctrine and gives you instruction on what you're to believe and how you're to live. It's reproof and cuts you up and tears down false belief, misconduct when you wander off. It is correction and sets you back up on your feet and restores you to a proper standing. And it's training in righteousness and chastens you positively to bear fruit and not sin anymore. It is valuable and sufficient for all areas of life. The Bible's important. Don't leave. That last point is going to go real quick, so I'm just going to. But before I do that, I want to read you this passage in Psalm. Because God's word is more important, as we're seeing, than my word. So I'll let it speak if I can find it. We're talking about sufficiency, how it's good for everything. Listen to this psalm. It's talking about the Old Testament, the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, it reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So scripture is profitable for all of these areas and it warns us, it, it holds us fast. So you hold fast, Timothy, to truth, but you got to be in scripture because it's holding you to truth. God's word is holding you. And that last thing, in order to continue in truth, we must submit to the equipping work of the scriptures. This is verse 17. Continue in what you've learned, Timothy, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, so that, here's the point, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The man of God here is a word that refers to human beings, so it can be understood as man or woman of God in other places. But specifically, this is talking about Timothy, because he's talking to Timothy, his child. And he's using a phrase that's taken from the Old Testament to talk about prophets. So he's anybody that's declaring God's word, I'm, I'm calling them a man of God. They're prophets, Isaiah, all these guys, man, man of God. I'm calling you Timothy. Be encouraged, man of God. Stay true. So, yes, we can take from this a timeless truth that it includes men and women now who want to proclaim God's truth. But in context, he's, he's calling him prophet in some ways. Men of God is a phrase used there. May be complete. The word is sufficient to make any man or woman of God complete. This complete word is used only once again in the New Testament, and it means fitted, complete, or perfect. So it's like they're trying to define it by its words. funny. Special aptitude, others have said, for given uses. It's proficient and capable to be what we are called to be or do. So we are completely proficient and capable. So that the man of God may be capable to do what he's called to do. And then the last thing, equipped for every good work. Equipped, again, word only used once, means to finish, to thoroughly furnish, to furnish perfectly for good works. Good works is used all over the New Testament to be a sum of all that we are created to be and do. Believers are fully furnished by God's word with everything they need to be. In sort of ways, I was thinking about it yesterday, like an empty house, 
is furnished completely with everything it needs in order for you to live in it. So our souls and a man or woman of God is completely furnished by God's word with everything that we need to carry out good works in this life. Scripture furnishes us. So we are not saved by good works, as a side note. However, we were created in Christ to do good works. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. And the Holy Sacred Bible gives us what's necessary to be capable to do what we're called to do because it furnishes us with everything needed to be godly people. So if we're called to do good works, to be godly, to be training ourselves in godliness, to have sound doctrine, to defend the truth, we've got to be in Scripture because it in itself, God through his word, through this, is equipping us and furnishing us to be able to do what he's calling us to do. If we're not in this, good luck. And that was basically my mentality is I love God, I love this life, but I don't really prioritize this much. But man, I pray that he'll keep me to remain and abide in the things that I've learned through studying this, to stay true to Scripture, because Scripture is what's furnishing me. Again, not the pages, but the God behind the pages. So this is my final, just some final thought before application. Again, I'm going to read John. Again, same word, continue, remain, abide. This is John 15. 4 through 11, abide in me, Christ says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do nothing. Stay in me, abide in me, because if you're out there, you can't do anything. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So abiding in Christ is keeping his word and keeping his commandments. Keeping his commandments is abiding in Christ. So if we want to be people of good works, zealous for good works, like I talked about last time, we've got to be in the Bible because we have to abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ and his words abiding in us is how we keep his commandments and therefore abide in him. Make sense? It's all this. You stay. You are constantly nourished by the words of faith is what another passage Paul talks about. Constantly nourished by the words of faith you stay in the vine it's nourishing you with what you need to do what you got to do so all in all timothy continue stay in the things that you've learned and been fully convinced of knowing from whom you've learned it the character of the people that give it to you gave validity to it and how from infancy you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in jesus christ all scripture is God-breathed and is useful and profitable and valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, capable, fully furnished with everything that he needs for every good work. Okay? So that's the text. The application, I set it up this way, points one through six are application. You hold fast to this. You remember this. You recall this. Tyson, you Know this. You understand this. You submit to this. Did I give you that last one? Submit? Okay, good. You submit to this. 
Those are application, right? But I wanted to take it one final step before I turn it over to the band to sing one song in application as well. About what Adam's been teaching us. I have, I have redirected my personal Bible study time because Adam sat down with me and said, look, this has to be important in your life. And I was like, man, it is. I read. I'm going through this Bible reading plan. I read a chapter a day. It's like, it may be, but the man of God needs to use it skillfully in a sense. And I was like so convicted by it. Cut me up. Cut me up. But I allowed the Father in his grace, or God's grace allowed me to allow him to build me up to where I once was and to give me a passion about the Bible. So now as I'm in the Word for large amounts of time, I feel in some ways more equipped and more furnished to do what he's calling me to do. So Adam's called us last two weeks to get serious about getting in the Bible. Okay, I'm telling you, I'm learning to be the type of guy that says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ too. But follow me as I'm following Adam, as Adam's following the Bible. Okay, Get serious about getting in the Scriptures. Find that time and guard it. And, and pray for me that I'll, that I'll continue to do the same, that we'll continue, that we'll remain. But specifically last week he had us fill out our names on a green card or a pink card. Green card, if you don't think that your foundation is very stable and you don't feel like you can teach yourself from the word and you don't think that you can teach somebody else, you don't think that you can make disciples, put your name here and we're going to work as hard as we can to make sure that you are not that anymore. Pink card, put your name on this. If you think in some ways by God's grace your foundation is stable for you to teach yourself from the word and teach others how to do the same and disciple others so that we can pair you up and we can get this going. So I had one application per card. Green card. If you believe there is no strong foundation to stand on in order to teach yourself from God's word and teach others to do the same, fervently respond to the attempts of your mentors to help lay the foundation you need and be discipled in God's word. So if you wrote your name down on a green card and you're saying, I don't really feel comfortable, then as people start investing into you, as I met with my guys at the C group and I said, look, I want to help you guys get this done so you can be a pink card in essence. Respond fervently to those attempts because as people are, as I'll get to the application there for the pink cards, we're going to do the act of, of seeking out you. So respond to that. Don't be lazy about this. This thing is, this word is so important for our life. It's sufficient to give us everything we need. So, yeah, so proceed, stay, but move forward like he talked about last week. Move on from milk to meat. Proceed urgently. Okay, we've got to get we've got to get busy. So I'm kind of saying proceed and stay at the same time. But you know what I mean? Pink cards. If you believe that you have a strong foundation to stand on in order to teach yourself from God's word and teach others to do the same humbly and continually strive to be the type of mentor worth following and go disciple others in God's word. If we're not the people, if we're claiming that, we need to pray for God's grace to keep us there, to help us remain, to help us to abide in the things that we've learned. Because this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's almost, in a sense, describing a post-discipleship relationship. Hey, remember when I discipled you? Remember the foundation? Continue in it. Now turn to the scriptures. You yourself learn these things. They're profitable for you. They're good. Turn to them. Teach yourself these things. And then in chapter 4, then turn around and reprove, rebuke, and teach God's word to others. You do these verbs of the things that are being done to you through God's word, but you've got to be in it. 
So it's, it's neat that he says, hey, look, hold on to the foundation that we laid for you. Now, go. But there are some, like we talked about, that say, I'm not really sure about my foundation. So we've got to get this settled first. But then it's all the same for all of us. We've got to continue in these foundations and move, move forward. And then lastly, for everybody, pink and green. Like I've already said, we've got to get serious about giving ourselves to be saturated in the Bible and, and find that time where we protect it. And this is coming out of nowhere, this last one. But we've, I've got to think more and pray more and work towards and give thought towards people who are spending their lives translating this Bible. We've got to pray for people. I mean, we just got, I posted that update on the city of the Stapleton family who spent the last decade in Vanuatu translating scripture for people who have never had it. They have never had God's word in order to equip them, to cut them up, to put them back where they need to be, to teach them what they need to know, to give them the wisdom that leads to faith in Christ. They didn't have that. Obviously, if people taught it, then yes, they had it. But to have it in their own print, like, wow, what an amazing privilege. And they, they're able to say, well, the last decade has been kind of unique and tough and, and hard at times, but we'd never change a thing because at the end of it, we use 10 years well. The people who never had the Bible before have it now. That is incredible. Man, so awesome. So we need to pray for them. Pray for them continuing on. He gave some prayer requests. I challenge you to go read it. He says, please pray for us even though we're leaving the island where we've been for 10 years. We still have a lot of work with translation checking to go. We need to raise money for mega voices to put scripture on audio solar power devices for people who can't read. Because there's so many people that can't read. But God's word is powerful that even if they can't read, they can hear it. So we want to give it out. We just want to give it to people because in it, that's how salvation is it. So that's it. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask them to come. We're going to sing a song and and summation of all this about the word. And then we'll be dismissed after that. Father, I'm so thankful for your mercy and your grace to help me speak. But God, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful that a man... A young man like me who is nervous about speaking about your word almost has nothing to be nervous about because your word speaks for itself. It speaks powerfully. It speaks and moves forward. It doesn't return to you void. It cuts us up. God, cut us up where we need to be cut up about getting serious about the Bible. But God, allow us to stay in it and be corrected and, and moved on to where and, and stood up to where we once were. And God, may it train us to not make those same mistakes, that we may be equipped furnished for every good work and that we may be godly people so that what jesus prayed that the world will know that we're your disciples because of our good works and because of our godliness and our righteousness but god we turn to you we trust and we thank you for still speaking to us that preserving for so long all the stories and all the teachings and all the sayings of christ thank you for sending your holy spirit like christ promised that he would bring to remembrance all the things said and to teach us things not said Thank you for teaching us and preserving this. And thank you for this country where we can have one of these freely, multiple versions of these study versions and different translations. But God, may they not be on our shelves throughout the week. May they be in our hearts. May we memorize them. May we hear the word? Yes. May we read it? Yes. May we study it? Absolutely. May we memorize it? Yes. Put it in our hearts so that we not sin against you. May we meditate on it all week long. Be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit. In its season. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name.